This is a Federal News Network podcast. You might think chief financial officers count beans and leaf through spreadsheets, but their profession needs training, skills development, and innovation as much as anybody else. A project between the Chief Financial Officers Council and the Office of Personnel Management sought to ensure financial people stay up to date. For more on the award-winning program, OPM's Strategic Foresight Program Analyst, Eric Popiel. Eric, good to have you in. Good to be here, Tom. And the Commerce Department's Deputy Chief Financial Officer, Steve Kunz. Steve, good to have you in. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us about this program. Eric, what did OPM bring to the chief financial officers, or did they come to you first? So the Chief Financial Officers Council came to OPM first in August of 2019, and they were looking for a different way to look at the future of the financial management workforce and really be proactive and anticipate what was kind of coming down the pike. So we met. We decided that we were going to use some foresight methodologies, really try and map the future, identify what was going to be most impactful to the Chief Financial Officers Council and the financial management workforce, and then using those methodologies to generate a strategic plan that we could actually implement. So the goal was not just to produce shelfware. The goal was to produce a product that could be implemented by the Chief Financial Officers Council. And briefly, what is the foresight methodology? Is that a thing? What it is, is there's a foresight framework that was developed at the University of Houston. It's a six-part process that goes all the way from framing your challenge down to implementation of your strategic plan. And we walked through that with the Chief Financial Officers Council with about 50 different volunteers throughout the 18-month project and just allowed them to be creative, to really think differently, to reframe their perspective and envision what a good, positive future would look like for financial management professionals in the federal government. Steve, what was the genesis of this from your standpoint? What is it that chief financial officers need to update or upskill? Because it's a profession that doesn't change a lot with respect to financial management in the government. You're correct. From the perspective of financial management, it does not change. But the technology and the information that is needed has been evolving over the past 50 years. And we felt like we needed to basically catch up. And what we were looking at is that we were looking at what students were coming out of college with, what they were studying, and we found that what they were looking at was not necessarily something that we could very easily incorporate into how we were doing it, how we were actually managing financial management in the federal government. So we wanted to take advantage of that change so that way we could get ahead of the curve as opposed to playing catch-up all the time. Yes, because there have been some legislative changes with respect to, say, CIOs and their financial responsibilities, and then they're supposed to work with the CFOs on a lot of projects, and sometimes the projects that you might have to oversee and help finance are themselves kind of hard to understand. Is that part of the thinking? It's part of that. It was also to leverage the fact that we found that data and technology were going to be, through this process that Eric described, we determined that data and technology were the two largest drivers of the changes that we were having because with the implementation of the Data Act that happened a few years ago, you know, there's such a reliance now on information and having the data help inform making decisions, financial decisions, helping the business of each of the departments within the federal government make good business choices. We needed to ensure that we had access to the data, number one, and how to utilize it. And then the second piece, which leverages technology, utilizing the most current software, the most current programs out there, whether it be Python or R, something that 
even I am not very familiar with, but I know that my staff has that type of experience and the students coming out of college and grad school, that's in the finance realm. That's what they're used to. And so we didn't want folks to help us in our recruiting efforts because we obviously have an aging workforce that we want to make sure that we're keeping in touch with everything. We want to be able to recruit folks that when they come in and work for us, I don't want them to say, uh, that's what my grandfather did. I don't want to do that. I'm sure. used to working with this type of software. And that would be a retention problem because they'd come in and then they'd want to leave. And so that's what right. we're trying to do. Right. In 1982, PCs came in and people had Lotus 1, 2, 3. And that's what I started ways, on. <laughs> and a lot of agencies still kind of manage that way. It's not mm-hmm. Lotus 1, 2, 3, but it's still spreadsheets and Correct. really data analytics and all of these new tools that didn't even exist back then. Absolutely. Even in the mainframe era, you now have to deal with. Right. And part of it is being able to visualize what is that data telling you? Because that's what the leaders within, you know, not not even just the government, even the private sector, leaders want to have, they don't have to sift through tables and charts. They want to have the data visualized for them so it tells them the story for what the data, how it will be used to make their decisions. And we needed to make sure that we got that type of skill set into our workforce. And that's what was built into this whole process. We found the things that we needed to focus on, and now we're actually trying to start executing against it. We're speaking with Steve Kunz. He's Deputy Chief Financial Officer at the Commerce Department, and with Eric Popiel, a Strategic Foresight Program Analyst at the Office of Personnel Management. So, Eric, what is the outcome of the project to develop, what, a coursework type of a plan? The outcome that we sought to generate was a visionary document for what the CFO council would need to focus on to be ready for the next 10 years. So we wanted to get out of that sort of short-termism, and we wanted them to get thinking about the future and say, we can make choices now to really make our financial management workforce prepared for the future. So the document sort of lays out the seven different focus areas for the financial management community. It also identifies 10 different skills that the financial management professionals will need for the future. And what's interesting about that is we took those skill sets that were based off of scenario analysis, what the future might look like, took them to OPM and had OPM rigorously validate. And they came back and said, well, we can combine these two, but we've got the other eight um, are are validated. So they actually validated uh, nine of the skills. Um, and so this do- is a structured process. It's not people sitting around a table and saying, this is what we think we're going to have to know. No. So the idea is there's a lot of qualitative analysis that goes into this. But on the back end of it, we want to apply the rigor and say, is what we came up with sitting around a table thinking about the future, which is inherently unknowable, is that something that actually resonates? And that's why we went to OPM to have those skill sets validated so that we could put them into the skills platform and not only train the financial management professionals on the skills of today, but also the skills they'll need to be successful in the future. And Steve, what are some of the skills that will be needed that maybe CFOs don't have now? Those skills would range from, as we were talking briefly about earlier, data analytics, data visualization, data presentation, project management, program management, effective presentation skills. The range of those skills wasn't just pure technically driven. There were what we all classify as the soft skills, right? So we want to make sure that we're also capable of having intelligent and influential conversations with leaders on this is what the data is saying, and we can actually present it in a coherent and very you know empowering way. That's an important point, because I think a lot of people outside of the financial channel in 
government think you are bean counters and actually CFOs are not accounting. That's something separate. Mm -hmm. And for someone that wants to get something done but doesn't know how they'll pay for it necessarily, the chief financial officer or one of his or her people can be a great ally in strategically figuring out how to get something done. Absolutely. We look at ourselves as you know the financial problem solvers. So you give us the problem set that you're trying to get to. As I tell my leaders, tell me what your objective is, and then let me help you create a path on how to get there. That will keep you good with all the appropriation law that we need to stay in line with, as well as make sure that you don't spend more money than you have. <laughs> yes, nobody likes to do that because you know it's not like FTX. Well, I guess they did go to jail after all. So yeah, you could go to jail. And uh, Eric, how does this get operationalized? I mean, you've identified the vision and the 10 skills, the focus areas. How does it translate into actual, say, coursework? So that's the beauty of this is that a lot of times when you do a foresight project, you sit around, you dream up this big strategic document, it sits on someone's desk and nobody reads it. Well, this one they took, we presented it to the Chief Financial Officers Council, they approved it. And then we took it to the Office of Management and Budget. They approved an executive steering committee that now has three work groups underneath that committee that are actually working on implementation. So we recognize that you can't do everything all at once. And so we've got three different work groups that are focused on projects that are going to lead to fulfilling those strategic goals that we're looking for. The final thing I'll mention on that is that this isn't a one-and-done process. And so... What I told the CFOs was, you know, we're going to come back in a couple years. We're going to look at what you've done. We're going to look at our strategic goals. We're going to challenge all our assumptions. We're going to recognize things have happened to us over the past three to four years, COVID. And we're going to look at our scenarios and we're going to redo sort of that strategic plan. Doesn't mean we have to throw it all out. But we can adjust it a little bit as necessary, and we're going to do that probably every two to three years to make sure that we continue to not only do what we're supposed to do to prepare for the future, but adjust and adapt as the future happens. And this methodology that worked so far successfully with the financial people, can that be replicated across other federal functions? I think absolutely. I think that we've demonstrated that we can be successful. And again, it's not perfect. But it's definitely moving the CFO Council in the right direction. I think you could do this across the Chief Diversity Officer Council, the CIOs, Chief Data Officers. We could do this across any major community in the federal government and get it done. Steve, you can probably imagine the mirror image of this. So all those data whizzes and scrum <laughs> developers and, you know, kind of high-end snot noses coming in might learn a little bit about finance and what you have to do for a living. This is true. This is true. That's me. You don't have to say that. <laughs> I, I would agree. Um, I think the, the pieces that Eric just talked about, are it's, it's important to recognize that this is something that is an iterative process. It's not a once and done, as he said. Right now, we have three fairly major projects that we're working on, one of which has already been recognized in the president's management agenda as one that we're hoping to leverage that will expand from the pure finance and the next wave that's mentioned in the PMA is to expand it into the uh, grants assistance community since that's one of the areas that has been the most impacted recently with the appropriated legislation. Sure, and grants spending outstrips procurement spending every year. That is correct. So some ripe territory. Yep. All right. Steve Kunz is Deputy Chief Financial Officer at the Commerce Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And Eric Popiel is Strategic Foresight Program Analyst at the Office of Personnel Management. Great having you in. Thanks, Tom. 
Their project, by the way, won an innovation award from the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say and on. I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, 
uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yep. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do, uh, was to, to, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.
With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.